The sea level is rising and the clock is ticking in the effort to make Connecticut's coastline more resilient in the face of climate change. We'll talk about that and also how that affects inland areas, too, as I am joined by Juliana Barrett, Extension Educator with the Connecticut Sea Grant Program. Juliana, a pleasure to have you aboard today to talk about this. How serious an issue is this, especially in lieu of what we had 10 years ago with the effect Sandy had on the Connecticut coastline? Well, good morning. Um, it's something that Connecticut is taking very, very seriously. Um, you know, the things that we're experiencing now are a little more incremental. You know, warmer days, warmer water. There's been changes in the fisheries patterns within Long Island Sound. Um, and, and we haven't had a hurricane in quite a while. We've had a few nor'easters, but we tend to kind of lapse into more more immediate matters, right, that we're dealing with. And climate change is just creeping along, and there are many, many groups taking it very seriously. Speaking of the hurricane point, the average span between landfalling hurricanes in Connecticut is every 16 years. The last landfalling hurricane we had was Bob in 1991, 31 years ago. What do your studies show you about projected increases in the sea level on Long Island Sound in the future? Well, so the Connecticut legislature um, passed um, laws uh, that that communities need to consider 20 inches of sea level rise by 2050. And those are projections that were put forward by um, the University of Connecticut. And from what I read, uh, by 2100, could be as much as six and a half feet higher than current levels. So... Uh, while that doesn't affect us where we live inland here, what can people on the shoreline do to prepare for this? Maybe not for the next five years, but for farther down the road. So, so there's a lot going on there. Um, so people are concerned about, so we saw after, after Irene and Sandy, homes are being elevated. Roads are being elevated. We're, we're really starting to think about coastal development and what's happening there, Right. How, how safe are these homes when there's a, a major hurricane event? It's not just the people. It's the first responders that we're putting in danger, you know, if we continue to build along the coast in certain areas. So having those, the whole, all the emergency planning is critical to what's happening. Um, and, and then, you know, in some areas in West Haven, um, there's been buyouts in areas that were repeatedly um, flooded. Um, the USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service is working to restore floodplains in those buyout areas. Um, so there's a lot of bits and pieces. And what I'm really happy to say is that um, it's not just on a town-by-town -town basis. There's much more regional work, and um, the state um, is really working hard on, on climate change, too. Tell me about how you use GIS. Number one, what is GIS? And number two, how does it help you make these determinations from your study? So, so this study um, with Tao Wu, who's a, a PhD candidate at the University of Connecticut, um, used GIS, which is a ge geographical information system. It's, it, it's a really powerful mapping and data analysis tool. And she took... Um, aerial photography that we have dating back to the 30s, and there's even maps that go back to the late 1800s. Um, 
and you can you can rectify them so that they're um, so that they line up sequentially through time, and then you can look at patterns of change in these areas. So, how have they changed naturally? How have they changed um, based on human interventions? Whether it's development, you know, putting up seawalls, things like that. Does that historical retrospective also find evidence of damage done by the 1938 New England hurricane, which probably was along the same impact level as Sandy was? Exactly. And and a great example is Ocean Beach in New London. So Ocean Beach, um, a beautiful, you know, waterfront area, pre-38 hurricane um, was full of small private cottages, full of them. And you can see that on the aerial photography. They virtually all got wiped out during the 38 hurricane. And it was determined that they were not going to be rebuilt. And instead, that became a natural area, a park. Um, and we've protected almost more of the shoreline because we're not allowing development there, because we had those natural features to help protect us during the next storm event. New London implemented green infrastructure measures that helped increase Ocean Beach Park's ability to absorb storm surges and floodwaters to some extent. These measures from the past, like the 1938 hurricane, are informative now. Are there more things that are being done at this point in time? What are some of the examples of what New London did? And maybe that's a bit of a bellwether for other coastal communities on things they can do to avoid damage of rising seawater. Exactly. So some areas are are looking at changes in zoning, um, you know, only allowing certain things in certain areas that are um, most threatened by floodwaters, storm surge, sea level rise. Um, A lot of communities are looking, you mentioned green infrastructure, there's something called living shorelines, which is using natural material, including rock, uh, development of marshes, to help protect areas that are experiencing erosion and flooding. You mentioned your co-researcher, Dr. Tao Wu, who was quoted as saying, the shift from keeping feet dry to living with water in the Netherlands is an example of resilient thinking. Can you expand upon that? Right. And so so much of the Netherlands is actually below sea level rise. They've been dealing with this issue for centuries. Um, and we have so much that we can learn from them. And it, it's that idea of living with water. Um, the Native Americans uh, have very much the same kinds of concepts, living with water, not trying to fight it, not trying to, um, you know, get the best of it. How can we work with these changes in our systems um, for the best results? Because often um, engineered solutions Things change so quickly, right, um, with climate change that engineered solutions may not work in the long term. What was the effect of construction of the interstate highway system in New Haven affecting the area's flood risk? That's a great point. So New Haven um, has a really fascinating land use history, and you can see the changes. A lot of the harbor area has, was filled way, way, way back, right? An industrial development came in, um, and those are areas that are now very prone, prone to flooding. Um, and so New Haven is really working on flood control measures, um, both structural and this idea of like living shorelines, for example. 
me ask a socioeconomic question about rising water levels that maybe people inland where we are go, what's this got to do with me? But after events like Sandy, which could happen again, and the flooding of just higher sea levels due to climate change and the like, could that have an effect on my insurance rates? Um, I don't know about your insurance rates, but something to certainly consider. Um, but we're all paying for these when these disasters occur. We're all paying for it. And the the more we think about um, land use planning and taking measures to avoid catastrophic economic losses, the better off we're all going to be, whether we're coastal or further inland. All right. And speaking of further inland, that's something else you want to talk about today. As we're adapting to an uncertain climate future, Connecticut is auditioning new forests. And inland, including in our very tree-laden part of eastern Connecticut, there's been a big change, especially in the last 10 years or so. Trees are dying off and there's more invasive species coming in. Just give you an overview of that for starters. Right. So, so our forests are definitely changing, and something like the hemlock woolly adelgid um, has really been hitting the hemlocks hard, and uh, they used to die back more when we had super cold winters. They couldn't survive. Our winters are generally a bit warmer. We're seeing, you know, more of the woolly adelgid surviving on the hemlocks, um, and then we've got a lot of other invasive coming in, not necessarily tied to climate change, but they're causing changes in our forests. Certainly right now we're seeing um, the emerald ash borer taking out all the ash trees in eastern Connecticut. Um, We've seen the spongy moth, which used to be called the gypsy moth, really do a number on the oaks. And that can be tied to different climate cycles. Um, You know, when we have um, drier um, springs and summers, uh, there's a fungus that would attack um, the the larvae, the caterpillars, um, and and in years when we have very dry, I'm sorry, when they're wet, um, the attacks on the on the oak trees aren't quite as bad. Tell me about the research being done at the Hoffman Evergreen Preserve in Stonington. That's a nearly 200-acre preserve, mostly hemlocks and other evergreens. As there was a dozen or so volunteers who went there to plant trees. A curious activity, considering the preserve is already a forest. Why they do that? So that's a great question. This is um, an area that's owned by Avalonia Land Conservancy, and we got a Long Island Sound Futures Fund grant to work on this preserve because the land trust knew that this preserve was unhealthy. They had many dead, diseased, dying trees. Um, There was no understory. Um, There weren't layers in the forest, right, like a tree zone, a shrub zone, and then that understory. Um, And so they had known this for many years. And what they finally were able to do was a series of patch cuts with a forester. So they had these five patch cuts where they pretty much cut out um, almost everything in one-acre patches. And then they had areas that were thin to allow better growth, more healthy trees to grow. And what the volunteers did, we had over a thousand um, saplings that we planted uh, with volunteer help, and to try to 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 boost this area up, and to think about um, what can survive, you know, for between now and 2050 and into the future. So we planted a lot of things like you know your oaks, black oak, red oak, white oak. Um, uh, hickory trees. 
Um, we planted a lot of things that were good for wildlife value, for example. And then we tried some new things, redbutt. Redbutt is a, a tall shrub um, that is just much more common further to the south of us. Uh, so we put in some red buds to see how they do. Things like sweet gum, which is found in southwestern Connecticut. Liquid ambar, another tree found in southwestern Connecticut and further south. Virginia pine is a pine that's on Long Island. As, as the warming trends continue, highly likely that we'll start to see more of it in Connecticut. So this was a, a implementation project um, to get, you know, trees in the ground, um, build up. Um, carbon reserves, for example, um, and engage people in this activity. And we love our sugar maples, especially in the fall, but do we now see fewer sugar maples and maybe less paper birch? That's a great point, yes. Um, the U.S. Forest Service has actually done vulnerability assessments um, from, for many, many tree species, um, and you can look at modeling showing um, the expected ranges of things like sugar maple into the future, and they're not going to be doing so well further south. Is that zone creep? Tell the folks what zone creep is. So so this is, um, when you look at an individual species range, a tree's range, for example, um, we're seeing this zone creep, so to speak, where species ranges are changing, often moving further north. What will be really telling is whether or not they can survive the winters, right? We still have cold snaps. We still have these, these frosts that occur. And it's going to be whether or not they can withstand those sorts of events. And it's not just whether they can survive. It's whether or not they can actually reproduce. What do you think the average homeowner or average person can do to help Connecticut forests? Plant trees. Take care of the forests that we have. Um, and don't be afraid to experiment a little bit, you know, uh, think about what's out there. Um, there's so many resources where you can really think about wildlife, um, and wildlife value when you're planting a new tree. Um, and the other big thing that has really taken hold, it's not trees, but, um, it's this pollinator pathway. Um, a concept where, where we're trying to hook up gardens for pollinators. So pollinators are a big part of this whole um, effort in terms of thinking about our natural areas. Juliana, what's the last tree you planted? What variety? Uh, the last one I planted, um, I, it was a hickory tree. Good answer. And good information today, both shoreline and inland with our forest. Juliana Barrett, Extension Educator with the Connecticut Sea Grant Program. Thank you for sharing your time today. Thank you. This is 14 WILI Willimantic and 95.3 FM.